We move to lesson 42 tonight. Find um, 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's where we'll start off. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Please. I don't want to sound too bossy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We move into lesson 42. Now, you'll, you'll be reminded. Let me give you a quick, a quick review. We've moved from interpretation, which is, I'm sorry, from observation, which is what do I see in the text, to interpretation, what does this mean? And now we're into application. And we talked about how it's so easy to, whether meaning to or not, to substitute for genuine application of, of what a Bible, Bible scripture is meant to teach me. It could be interpretation instead of application, superficial obedience instead of substantive life change, rationalization instead of repentance, emotional experience instead of volitional decision, communication instead of transformation. And then last time, we talked about truth that transforms. Truth that transforms. And, and in James chapter 1, he likens God's word to a mirror, the most accurate mirror that there is. And if we want to get the most out of God's word as a mirror, we've got to be willing to come to it, surrender to its conviction, be convinced of its truth, and then conversion to turn towards the way we ought to be living. And then we talked about a transformed people. We worked out of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we talked about that new doesn't mean new as far as time. It means new as far as that which is fresh, that which is unused. It's, it's, it's God doesn't, doesn't change everything about us. He takes what he put into us and makes it fresh and new and, and is trying to get rid of the old man and replace it with the new man. And, uh, and we talked about workmanship, a masterpiece that possesses both beauty and utility. We talked about good works being intrinsically good acts of eternal value. We talked about before, that word before. By the way, I'm talking about Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them before. This was planned in eternity past. God has always had a plan for your life. Now, he allows us to choose whether or not we're going to surrender to it. We do have free will, but he's had a plan all along. And then we walk our lifestyle. And what we walked away from with this was be who you are, and that's the who that God made you to be. The who that God made you to be. Now we move into lesson 42. Oh, I don't want to forget that. This is our verse, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. That I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. The four steps of application. Our author, Howard Hendricks, says this. He said, most Christians are like poor photographs, overexposed and underdeveloped. Now, when I mentioned this quote to our Bible class, they had no idea what I was talking about because they don't know anything about photographs being exposed and developed because how do we take photographs today digitally you take them digitally and then you get on your computer and you put filters on and you change this and you change that but you pretty much have the image just the second you take it isn't it interesting if I can take a moment 
Our kids know nothing of what it was to take film out of a camera, put it in an envelope, leave it at a pharmacy, and wait three weeks to see how they turned out. Wasn't there a certain excitement about, let's open and see how the pictures turned out? Yeah, they don't know a thing about that. Because now what do we do? They don't even take a jump drive to Walmart and give them the print. No, now you email it or you send it via the website. And, and, and they, they print it for you and you go pick them up. And, but you already know what you're dealing with. I mean, they don't know anything about that. They don't know anything about, about pictures being overexposed or underdeveloped. So what's the point? The point is this. There's people that have had plenty of exposure to God's word. Christians that, that have been around God's word maybe their whole lives. But what real difference has it made? I went to a Christian college. And I think about people that, that were in my, in my dorm. I, I think about guys that were in the same major as me, which is pastoral theology. And all of the Bible to which we were exposed. And it was a ton. And now, if you visit their social media pages, it's as though they're not even believers. How does that happen? It happens in the matter of application. It happens when somebody is a hearer of the word, but not a doer. Scripture has the power to transform us. But if there is to be spiritual growth, then we've got to commit to that which our hearts desire least. And what is it that the human heart resists the most? Change. Now let's, let's take a moment to honestly assess ourselves. All of us, to some level, don't like change. Now, it could be in different categories of our lives. But there have been people that have stayed at terrible jobs for far too long because they would rather have the familiar terrible than the unfamiliar possible. Because it's change. You know? There, there have been people that have entertained toxic friendships far too long because they don't want to change. And there have been many of us that either through the preaching, the teaching, the study of God's Word, the Holy Spirit has pointed something out in our lives that applied directly to us and we never acted on it because we don't want to change. So these principles that we're going to give tonight are going to help anybody apply Scripture in pretty much any circumstance. There's four of them. They're single words, real easy bullet points, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll talk about the four steps of application. Father, would you help us now as we get into this lesson, help me to teach it in just the way that most pleases you. May we apply it in just the way that most pleases you. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. The four steps of application. The very first one is no. Know what? Well, first of all, we're to know the text. Now, that's what this whole first two-thirds of the book has been about. Observation. What do we see in the text? Interpretation. What is this text saying? What does it mean? Not what does it mean to me. What does it mean? We're not concerned with what it means to us. We're concerned with what it means. And then, once we know what it means, how does this apply to us? What do we do with this? Know the text. Now, the next one is going to sound a little wokey, but follow me with this. When you apply Scripture, you got to know the text. That's the most important thing. But then you also need to know yourself. First Timothy 4.16. Take heed unto who? Thyself. Paul speaking to Timothy here. And unto the doctrine. Continuing them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Paul says there's two things you need to take heed unto, Timothy. You need to take heed unto the doctrine. But you need to take heed unto yourself. So what does he mean by that? Two things. Timothy, know yourself. Christian, know yourself. First of all, know your liabilities. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Take an honest assessment of yourself and know your liabilities. Now that is in direct contradiction to what the world teaches. The world tells us, you're great. And don't you let anybody talk bad about you because you're awesome. Now we are special in that God created us. But we better have an accurate self-assessment that includes being able to honestly see our liabilities. Now, friends, you know as well as I do, it's very difficult to be objective about yourself. That's why you rely heavily on godly friends and associates that can help you with that. I have had many occasions in which people have had to check me because I wasn't thinking too well on my liabilities. But this next one, I think, is harder for some to express, and I'm going to get into why. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, will you? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. Know yourself, know your liabilities, but also know your assets. Do you have assets? Yes, you do. 
Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. So what are we talking about? Spiritual gifts. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols. I love that phraseology. He's talking about idols that can't speak, but I like just reading as dumb idols. They're dumb. It's not what he meant, but that's what it says to me. No, but um, you know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I, I give you to understand that no man speaketh by the Spirit, speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now watch this. Now there are diversities of gifts. What are we talking about? Spiritual gifts. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. Now he's about to give us some spiritual gifts here. Some of them are no longer in action because different reasons, the completed word of God and dispensational stuff. But, but some of them still exist, but they're, they're their terminology and their, their definition have, have changed a bit. Prophecy comes to mind. Prophecy used to be a foretelling of the Word of God. Now it's a foretelling of the Word of God. Okay? So, so some of these apply today, some of these don't, but we'll just, we'll just run through them. Verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another, the word of knowledge by the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of, kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these work at that one and the same self-spirit. So, I'm sorry. Self-same spirit. Watch this. Dividing to how many? Every man, severally or individually, as he will. So if you're a Christian, the Bible declares that you have at least one spiritual gift. You have at least one asset. And yet for a lot of us, it's a whole lot easier for us to speak on our liabilities than it is for our, on our assets. Why is that? I think there's two reasons. Number one, you, you don't want to seem prideful. I went out to eat with a couple of couple of guys the other day, and to our well, to my two o'clock was a young man interviewing for a job at this restaurant. So we eavesdropped a bit. This guy did not have a problem enumerating his assets. Some of them were completely irrelevant to this job that he was trying to get, but you know. And, and so when somebody says, tell me some of your strengths, you know, and, well, um, sometimes I care too much, you know, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, it's kind of hard because you don't want to come off as being prideful. <laughs> it's like when I candidated for this church. You got to talk about stuff like that. What are you good at? Well, I can't say nothing because then why, why hear the candidate? You're good at nothing. Nothing. Not a thing. Thanks for coming by. But on the other side of it, what are you good at? Everything. I'm great. Can't do that either. We're talking about honest assessments. We don't want to be prideful. But there's some people that genuinely don't see it in themselves. 
Now, you've got to be careful. That in and of itself can become its own kind of pride, a, a faux humility. So let's try to work through this. It is important that we recognize the assets God has blessed us with that we might use it for his glory. The same is true of our liabilities. All right, so let's, let's say sitting here in front of me is John Smith. John Smith recognizes he's had some liabilities. John Smith cannot carry a tune in a bucket. Probably shouldn't be in the choir. Now, I'm not saying you have to be a great singer to be in the choir, but I'm saying if, if when you're singing, you, you sound like a screech owl <laughs> that's been hit, you know, then, then maybe, maybe that's not your best, your best option. But maybe John Smith is one of the best organizers you've ever seen in your life. I mean, he has the gift of taking complex things and getting them ordered to where they are manageable and bite-sized. That's something God can use, and that's a gift that God's given him. I need to see my liabilities. If, if one of my liabilities is, I just don't like kids probably not going to be much help to Brother Branson in children's church because you kind of need to like kids to work in children's ministry. Not constantly. You'll have moments where, I don't like kids. You know, you'll have those moments. <laughs> All of our teachers have been there. You know? but, but generally speaking, there, there's something that points to a giftedness there. We've got to be honest with ourselves. And when you study the Word of God, you've got to be prepared to identify, okay, this is something the Bible has revealed as a liability in my life. Or this is something the Bible has revealed as an asset in my life, and I need to start using it for the Lord's glory. So you can sing. Then maybe it's time to start thinking about singing for Him. Maybe... Maybe you are tremendous at just interacting with people and making them feel comfortable. There's any number of applications for that in a local church setting. Maybe, well, we'll move on. Sometimes we have this idea that because you have a liability in one area, then you're lesser than somebody else. Let me, let me try to dispel that. I grew up in the days when the NBA, the National Basketball Association, was, was both watchable and actual basketball. <clears throat> and I'm getting to where I, I feel like neither of those is true anymore, at least the defensive side of things. I grew up in the time where you pretty much, you pretty much had the, the, the Eastern Conference. It was the Knicks, the Bulls and the Pistons just beating up on each other, and one of them would crawl out of that mess and win that, that, that division. Okay. Michael Jordan getting beat up by Bill Lambeer those days. And then whoever won in the East would play usually the Lakers, sometimes the Jazz, sometimes the Spurs, 
and one year Phoenix. I mean, that, you know, that, that, that's kind of how it worked. I'm probably forgetting somebody, but anyway. And Seattle had a team back then. And I think of the Bulls. I'm of the opinion that Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player to ever step on the court. Okay? I just am. I didn't say he's the greatest human being. I said the greatest, the greatest basketball player ever. And you say, well, you know, what about LeBron? LeBron didn't play against Bill Lane Beer and Charles Oakley and those guys. Michael Jordan did. Um, and I may do a whole message on my, no, I'm not going to do that, but, okay. If you had a game on the line and you were down by two, and you had to have somebody, or let's say down by one, and somebody had to take the final shot. You've got the ball, you're going to inbounds it. There's a second and a half, two seconds on the clock. Who do you want to get the ball in? Whose hands do you want to get the ball in? Michael Jordan. And by the way, he wants that ball. He wants that ball. But let's say it's not that. Let's say... It's a situation where the other team is shooting a free throw. And if they miss and the Bulls get a rebound, the game's over. Who do you want getting that rebound? Not Michael Jordan. Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman couldn't shoot for anything. You did not want him on a full court fast break. But if you needed a rebound, Dennis Rodman would literally kill you <laughs> to get that rebound. And then get in a plane and go to North Korea and hang out with the, those people. <laughs> crazy, crazy as all get out. But if you needed a rebound, Dennis Rodman's your guy. He was a liability offensively. <laughs> in a lot of, he was offensive too, but in a lot of ways. I didn't say these are the best people. But nobody better rebounder than Dennis Rodman. We all have liabilities. We all have assets. And we're all needed on the team. You know that Michael Jordan didn't win a championship until they started putting people around him. You know? So you've got to be able to take an honest look and see yourself as the Bible shows you. Know the text. Know yourself. Okay? So the first one is no, and Romans 12 through, we've already been there, okay? Next, number two, relate. It is critical that we relate the scriptures to ourselves, that we take what we're going to call a spiritual inventory. And so when I'm studying the word and I'm trying to make application here and I'm trying to relate to the scriptures, I'm going to ask myself, how does the word impact the following areas, okay? First of all, how does this impact my professional life? Now, when we did this in class, I explained to them, for them right now, your professional life is you're a professional student. Now, a couple of them have jobs that they work, and certainly this would apply there. But, but all in all, it's your, your job as a student. And so how does this affect your, your job as a student? How does this affect your job vocationally? How does, this affect, how does this affect things like your ethics? Does God care how we conduct ourselves on the job? 
in ethics and performance. Yeah. I may be on paper, I may be the best salesman, the best fabricator, the best whatever, but if I am unethical, is God pleased? No. If I have reasonably good ethics, but I put forth no effort in production, is God pleased? No. And so when we, when we go to work, when I come here, I need to be able to relate Scripture to the areas of my professional life because it does matter. I've never understood how Christians can go to work and be either the sorriest workers or the meanest bosses or whatever else and say, well, I'm at work. No, there is no section of your life where the Bible shouldn't apply. I'm going on vacation, and what happens on vacation stays on. No. No. Our professional life, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them through your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same thing unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is their respective persons with him. Now, we're not slaves and slave owners now, but are the principles still there as to how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the workplace? Yeah. How, does, how do I relate the word to my professional life? Oh, here's another one. How do I relate it to my social life? Maybe we're talking about our leisures and our entertainment. What's, what, what's your favorite thing to do to relax? Oh, preacher, I love to gamble. Okay. Well, lovingly, I would say to you that that shouldn't be part of your leisure as a Christian. What's the sin of gambling? Well, well, there's an addictive quality to it, for one thing. I'll tell you what isn't the sin of gambling. Risk is not the sin of gambling. If you've put money in the stock market, you've assumed a certain degree of risk, haven't you? And the Bible talks about investing your money. The biggest problem with gambling is in order for you to succeed, other people have to fail. Other people have to lose. You profit off of other people's misfortune, and God doesn't bless that. Now, that said, if you hit the lotto and want to give towards the Family Life Center, I will not ask questions. <laughs> I will assume you got a big inheritance, and I will just take it and thank God. Is that ethical? Well, Billy Sunday was a better Christian than me, and he said the devil's had it long enough. I'm a bit tongue-in-cheek in that. How about this? Save me that dilemma and just don't do it. How about that? Fine, I'll keep it for myself. All right, that's between you and the Lord. What's your leisure? Oh, there's nothing I enjoy more than just going home and vegging out in front of the TV. That's not in and of itself a sin unless you're watching something you shouldn't. Or you're watching too much of it when you should be doing other things. Me too. How do I relate things to my social life? How about this? How about our relationships? Does it matter who your friends are? Yeah. 
I have no desire to intrude upon the personal relationships of our young people or of their parents. But I do have a responsibility as your pastor to remind you that we are or soon will become those with whom we associate. We've got to be super careful. And we tend to, we tend to hang on the teens about this thing. And listen, I feel the way I feel, and I believe what I believe about our teenagers' relationships and, and interactions and all of that. But we also need to be reminded our parents and our adults have a responsibility to do the same thing. And if we hang out with friends on the weekends that don't share our values, what are we teaching our kids? Now, family, it's a little bit harder to make that distinction. And I get that. But are there people in our families that maybe we need to? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Second Corinthians 6.14. Be not equally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? It matters who we associate with. So my social life needs to relate to the Scriptures. My professional life. Now here's maybe the most important one, because this is what's going to trickle down into the others. My internal life. My thinking. We know from Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What's down in the well, this isn't scripture, but it's close. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. So how should we be thinking? Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. An exercise that I've tried to do in my own life that has yielded no small amount of conviction. If you really want to get an idea of whether or not your mind is where it ought to be, Take note of the last things you're thinking about as you lay down to go to sleep. Now, that's not always going to be wrong things. But it is going to give you some insight as to where your mind goes when it's most unguarded. And to my shame... As much as I would love to tell you that I pillow my head at night and I drift off thinking about God and his goodness, I wish I could say that was always true, but it's not. But if we're where we ought to be spiritually, it should be. What did David say? Early will I seek thee? Seven times a day will I praise thee? What's he talking about? All through my day, that's where my mind needs to be. Here's one that's really, really current. When it comes to my internal life, we're asking questions about my thinking. How about this? My posting.
if you'd forgive a paraphrase, as a man thinketh in his heart, as a man typeth on his phone. So is he. I thank the Lord for his Holy Spirit who has very many times not let me hit send. Maybe a quick sidebar. We're talking about the working word. How does God's word work in our lives? Three, three ways primarily. It exposes sin. It gives God's commands, what we're supposed to be doing. And it gives us examples to follow. If you want to really tackle this matter of relating God's word to your life, then you let it expose your sin, you let it give you God's commands, and you follow the examples that it offers. So no, relate. Then number three, meditate. We've, we've let the Far East religions and, and Far East wrong thinking rob us of the joy and beauty of scriptural meditation. Because when we hear meditation, what do we think? Om, om, bop, bop, aloo, bop. Some of y'all get that reference. It's from an old Garfield cartoon. Somebody watching on social media will get that, and they'll be like, that dude watched Garfield when he was a kid. That's right, I did. That's not meditation. The Hebrew word that is often translated meditate comes from a word that they would use describing a bovine, a cow, chewing cud. Now, forgive me if this is a little crass. I don't mean for it to be. Those of you with an agricultural background will know I'm telling the truth. Cows have more than one stomach. In particular, they have something called a rumen, from which we get our word ruminate. And what happens is they eat their grass, and it hangs out there, and then they bring it back up and chew it again, and it's called chewing the cud. Gross to us, but cows love it. You know, and, and any kind of ruminant like that, you'll see them doing that a lot. What are they doing? It's God's way of making sure they get all the nutrients out of that food that they possibly can. And when it says to meditate on the word of God, that's exactly what he means. You keep it stored up here and you bring it up when you need it and you chew on it again. That's what it means to meditate. Not too long ago, we preached a message that, that basically was about hushing up. Because that's a hard thing to do sometimes, is to sit quietly and let God speak to you, His Spirit, through His Word. It's hard. But sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. Let's be quiet. How much does God's Word roll over in our minds and in our hearts. How much? It's important to your growth. Our school verses, Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, 
but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. What happens? Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. You cannot have prosperity. You cannot have success as a Christian without meditating on the word of God. Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he what? Meditate day and night. Notice there's two sides to that. What we shouldn't do and what we should do. I know plenty of Christians that do an excellent job of staying away from the counsel of the ungodly and not standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of the scornful. I mean, they are walking the line, but they're not meditating in the word. It takes both. Now, there's a great application here to the subject of, uh, there's the verses we just read, the subject of Scripture memory. You're not always going to have your Bible available to you, and that's one of the many reasons that it is so critical that we commit Scripture to memory. Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I done what? Hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Meditate. So if you want to get the most application out of your Bible study, first of all, you've got to know. You've got to know the text. You've got to know yourself. Then you've got to relate the text to our professional life, our social life, and our internal life. Then you've got to meditate on it. And here's the last one. You've got to practice it. Now, when we use the word practice, we don't mean trying something until you get it right as much as we mean this is my vocation. Now, you do try it until you get it right, but the word practice more means like a doctor or a lawyer sets up a practice. This is what I do. This is how I live. We're asking the question, as we study the Bible, what is our ultimate Goal. And before I reveal this slide, I'm interested to know what you think is the ultimate goal for Bible study. And there's all kinds of good answers. And I'm not saying that your answers would be lesser than the one that the book gives, but it's, it's, it's something to really think about. The ultimate goal for Bible study. Anybody want to venture a thought? Because at the moment, you're kind of like my Bible class. They didn't want to either. Yes. Okay. To grow. To be more like Christ. Okay. Good answers. And, and correct answers. Huh? To mature. Grow closer. I'm sorry. Okay. All correct. But listen to the answer that he gives. And when I first saw it, I was like, eh. But let's, let's, let's let it sink in. The goal is to practice truth. 
Well, that seems too vague, doesn't it? But think about it. I got saved because I practiced truth. If I'm growing, it's because I'm practicing truth. But wait a minute. Isn't it meant to make us more like Jesus? Well, what's Jesus? The way, the truth, and the life. So the more I meditate on that, the more I think, I think you may be on to something. To practice truth. Now, if we can agree, at least in principle, that one of our goals in Bible study should be to practice truth, then we want to ask ourselves this question, what stunts our pursuit of that goal? What keeps us from practicing truth on a consistent, victorious basis? Here it is. And it comes in a quote by our author. Howard Hendricks said this, Your hunger for the word will be in direct proportion to your obedience to it. If I don't hunger for the word of God like I should, it is because I am not being as obedient to it as I should. And if I'm not obedient to it, it's because I don't hunger for it. Well, how do I develop a hunger for it if I need that hunger to obey? You don't need that hunger to obey. You obey because it's right to obey. And then as you obey the word of God, he'll develop that hunger. It's like working out. You do it long enough, what do you find? You want more of it. You miss it. You've developed something. you know. And if it's no longer part of your life, you find you miss it. But sometimes you have to start out by doing it because it needs to be done. I hate the idea of being tied to medicines. I don't like the idea of I have a daily pill. That's yet another thing that's, that's pointing towards middle age for me. I used, to, I used to kind of make fun of my parents because they had their pills. Every morning, every morning. They took their pills. And I'd be like, how much of that do you really need? Because, I mean, they, they were getting up there. How much of that do you really need? And these, this vitamin for this and that for that and all that. You know what I found? I took my blood pressure pill because the doctor said I needed to. And now when I don't, I know it. I didn't take it this morning. I forgot. Yeah. Can I tell? Yeah. Yeah. You start obeying the word of God and then you get away from it, you'll know it. He was like, man, I should have took that pill this morning. But disobedience can stunt our practice of the word of God quicker than anything. So if we want to be healthy Christians, if we want to grow as Christians, what are the two ingredients? It's the exact same two ingredients that we would as as people. It begins with the right food. 
Well, what is the food for the Christian? The Word. You cannot grow without the Word of God. That's why I just, I just have to shake my head at people that say, well, I just love Jesus, and I don't get caught up in doctrine and all that stuff. I just love Jesus. And, it, well, then you're not going to grow as a Christian if you're saved to begin with. Because if you're not dealing with the doctrines of the Word of God, you are not growing. You're not. Now, I will admit that we can, we can get too caught up on things that are debatable. You know. I've got, I've got friends of mine that are so hung up on a particular debatable thing about Scripture that, that they're not, they, they can't see anything else and they don't grow as a result of it. You know. They're so hung up on post-millennialism or something like that that they couldn't couldn't tell you any other doctrines. But if you're getting the right food, Jeremiah 15, 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. Jesus told the devil in Matthew 4.4, 4, he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. If you're not, if you're not studying the Bible, you are spiritually malnourished. You sure are. You are spiritually malnourished. I read an article years ago. Somebody had found a way to take a certain type of plastic and manufacture it in a way that it looked just like a bag of rice. And they would sell these bags of rice, particularly to third world countries and people that didn't know any better. And these people would even go so far as to eat this stuff. And they'd feel full. But what did it ultimately do? You do it enough, it kills you. But I feel full. But you're undernourished, malnourished, or even poisoned. There's a lot of Christians that feel full because of emotional experiences or you know, something like that, but they're malnourished because they're not in the Word. It is my desire, it is my heart's desire to bring meals to you Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night that help nourish you as a Christian. But please understand this. What you get here is not sufficient for your spiritual diet. You cannot get enough in three hours out of the week to be enough as a Christian. You have got to supplement this with studying the Bible on your own. You have to. You have to. This is not enough. God never intended this to be enough. It's just like with our kids. Well, they go to Christian school, not enough. They go to Sunday school, not enough. Mom and most specifically dad need to open the book at home. What do we need? We need food. I'm good with that one. We also need exercise. (laughs) 
I have a watch that lectures me. Did it today. I was working on this. I was working on the outline to give to y'all. I was doing God's work, spiritual things, things that are pleasing to him. And my watch told me, it's time to stand up. Which is its way of saying, you've been sitting too long. And the watch doesn't care what I've been doing sitting too long. It just says, I need to get up and get some exercise. And I resent it. But it's true. I got a friend of mine, Steve Cluth. Works for CLA. He's kind of like Brother Gibbs' right-hand man. He has one of those stand-up desks. He doesn't have a desk chair. I can't stand people like that. I told him that. So what, are you trying to show off? But you know what he told me? He said, as much time as I spend in my office, if I'm not standing, I'll be in bad shape. Well, I'm not getting a stand-up desk. But I get where he's coming from. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Paul tells Timothy that exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little. Yeah. But godliness is profitable in all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. As much as our body needs physical exercise, our spirit needs biblical exercise. So the four steps of application, know, relate, meditate, practice. Now, next time, what do we do? We're going to talk about, just briefly, we're going to talk about what's called customized Christianity. And then we're going to get into the nine questions that we should always ask when we approach when we approach the scriptures. I'll give you one just to whet your appetite. Is there a command to obey? Here's another one. Is there a prayer to repeat? Now, not a vain repetition, but is there a prayer that I can apply in my own life? An obvious example, you know that every day I read and pray Psalm 51. Why? Because I want to be good at repenting. I'm good enough at sinning. I want to be equally as good at repenting. And so we'll cover that, Lord willing, next week.